In the ancient world, there are no covenants between a deity and human beings except for one country, and it's Israel. Just one country, out of all the people groups in the world, where they're between the deity and the humans, there is a covenant relationship. Very special thing. Because if you, if you study all the various uh, religions and, and deities of the world, they're, they're interesting. But you'll find something. It's interesting. They, they often talk about their deity's power, but they don't talk about how good their God is. And therefore, there isn't this covenant, this agreement between the deity and the humans. For example, uh, the ancient Egyptians believed that Ra, the sun god, was the most powerful god. That's their description of him there. The one on the right is Ra. And they believed Ra was the one who created all forms of life. But there was no covenant, because Ra is not a good god. Bel was the chief deity of Babylon. By the way, Bel has another name. Uh, he was kind of like renamed um, after I, I put his name up there for you. Marduk, another sun god. You'll, you'll, you'll see a connection, by the way, often the, the sun god is, seems to be the most powerful of their deities. But again, there's, there's no covenant with, or between Marduk or Bel and people. And then you come to the promised land, the Canaanites and the Phoenicians there around Israel, well they had often in our Bible that you see the name Baal or Baal he was the god of fertility and rain he was a very common god and we often see the Israelites struggling in their idolatry with, with this particular god but again, he wasn't good uh, the, the people didn't really know where they stood with this deity now, according to uh, GreekGodsAndGoddesses.net, it said this, that Zeus was the first of the gods in a very imposing figure, often referred to as the father of gods and men. That's a statue of Zeus. Uh, he's a sky god who controls lightning and thunder. Zeus is king of Mount Olympus, the home of Greek gods, where he rules the world and he imposes his will onto gods and mortals alike. So again, he's not good. There is no covenant relationship between Zeus and the people. For the Romans, they kind of just renamed Zeus into Jupiter. Jupiter was the king of the gods. So he was basically renamed after Zeus. Again, no covenant relationship. In Hinduism, Lord Vishnu is the supreme god. And, and for them, a supreme God is regarded as an entity that exists and gives life to all things. Uh, this supreme God is believed to have created the universe and many other gods and goddesses to be his helpers, but again, no covenant relationship. He's not good. Islam is a monotheistic religion. Interestingly enough, I couldn't find an image on the internet anywhere for Allah. But that's supposedly Allah. I don't know Arabic. But uh, their, their God they call Allah. And Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. 
Muslim, or Islam is the world's second largest religion, somewhere approaching uh, apparently 2 billion followers, making up approximately 25% of the world's population. We, most, mostly we call them Muslims, right? But, but again, there is, he's not good, and therefore there is no covenant relationship between this deity and the people. Only the true God, whose name, by the way, is Yahweh, relates to His people by covenant. And by the way, that's Yahweh in Hebrew. And by the way, you read from right to left in Hebrew. He's the only one willing to commit Himself in a covenant relationship to His people. And by the way, covenant is clearly the focus of Genesis chapter 17. And by the way, has been the focus of chapter 15 and going all the way back to chapter 12 as well. You're, in fact, you're going to see the word, English word covenant, in chapter 17, 13 times. Take note of that as we read. 13 times, it is clearly the focus. The covenant that, by the way, we, we read about in chapter 15, there it was installed, set in order now here in chapter 17. And the other main subject you need to be aware of as we read chapter 17 together is God Himself. Yahweh is the one who dominates this chapter. He's the one doing most of the speaking. In fact, uh, as you as we go through this, take note of His speeches. Uh, all the way from verse 1 into, into to verse 22, He is the one dominating the speaking here. And then finally the chapter ends with Abraham's response to Yahweh's speeches and So just take note of that as well. How does he respond to Yahweh? So let's read the words of the living God from Genesis 17 together, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house 
And he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name uh, shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine, or ninety, sorry, ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And that ends chapter 17. I propose to you, though, today, from this particular chapter of Genesis 17, that God wants you to be totally devoted to Him in love and obedience. God wants you to be totally devoted to Him. We see a God who is a covenant God. And so as we get into this chapter, what we're going to do is we're going to allow the the, the chapter to answer this question, what does it mean to have a covenant God? Since it mentions the word covenant 13 times, God's the, the main focus here as he's talking about his covenant. We need to learn about this God who is the covenant God. So what do we see? What does it mean to have a covenant God? Well, first of all, we see that to have a covenant God means you have an incomprehensible God. You can't comprehend Him. He's, and by incomprehensible, I, I, the idea is, I mean, He's a perplexing God. He's puzzling in some ways. He's mystifying in some ways. And I say this because if you notice in your Bible, there is a huge blank between chapter the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. Well, in your printed Bible, it's not so huge. It's only a few centimeters, right? 
But I say it's huge because time-wise, it is actually far more than that. Time-wise, because in, in chapter 16, Abraham, who is Abram at that point, is 86 years old. But now you come to chapter 17, verse 1. How old is Abraham? He's now, what, 99 years old. So from the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of chapter 17, you have a huge blank. In that white space, you have how many years? 13 years. So you can write in your Bible, 13 years, boom, gone, between that white space. But what does Yahweh do? Is he just uh, gone, inactive, not doing anything? (laughs) Of course not. It's a good thing Yahweh highlights his promises here, or Abraham, because that's a long time to go. He still hasn't had a, a son from his wife, Sarai. What are the promises, by the way? Well, God highlights, starting in verse 5, that Abraham's going to become the father of many nations. He still doesn't, <laughs> he still hasn't had Isaac at this point, but yet he's going to, God changes his name to the father of many nations. Wouldn't you just love for God to do that to you? You'd be the laughing stock of everybody in the entire city of Hamilton if you had no children from your wife. And God says you're going to be the father of many nations. And then in verse 6, Abraham's going to be very fruitful, though there's no sign of it at this point. And then in verse 8, God says, Hey, I'm going to give you all the land of Canaan and also to your seed, Abraham. Though at this point, Abraham owns a... Nothing. He owns no real estate at this point. There in verse 8. And then we see that Yahweh becomes very stubborn in a good way about his promises and how those promises are actually going to pan out. The, the seed, he says there in verses 15 to 21, Abraham's seed and the blessing of that is going to come through his wife Sarah. And in fact, God even names the name of his child through Sarah, that it will be Isaac. So God is stubbornly insisting that it is his way, his promises, and he's going to fulfill his promises. It's almost like God takes some delight in purposely doing things the hard way, the long way, and uh, sometimes we find that very puzzling and perplexing and mystifying. And that's why I'm saying we have a God who is incomprehensible. We can't fully comprehend him. And my friends, here is reality. You need to learn something about God, that God is never in a hurry. He is never in a hurry. Now that often seems strange to us. And it might even create some problems for us if you, if you think that he's that way. And sometimes what can happen is that, that truth can actually wear on our faith. That is, if you are one of those people who prefers a deity who has high blood pressure and is constantly on the move, that might wear on your faith. But there is a truth that will help us to not have a noisy soul. Here's the truth, my friends, that the Christian life is often very undramatic and quite ordinary. Did you hear me? The Christian life is usually undramatic and quite ordinary. Think about that white space in your Bible from chapter 16 to 17. 
what was Abraham doing during that time, during those 13 years? See, most of the time it was very ordinary. For example, he probably went out in the morning to get the goat milk for his breakfast cereal. He's probably doing veterinary work on his animals, and he's probably brushing his teeth and maybe getting over the flu and probably settling disputes among his workers. Just ordinary stuff during those 13 years. And that's often the case with you and me, right? You wake up in the morning, you might, you know, your day might look like I'm going to do some cooking. Some of you might change a tire. Some of you might change a nappy. You might write an email and you might read a book. Very ordinary stuff, right? That's often the way the Christian life looks. The question is, for you, my friends, is can you stand the ordinariness of the Christian life? Or are you one of those people who expects it to be very dramatic? You want a God with high blood pressure who is constantly on the move. Is that what you want? Or do, do, do you need a religion that is on steroids? Much of life is ordinary stuff, and if we have, if we can't be content with the routine days, then you're going to run into problems. You're going to have a very noisy soul. So you need to recognize God's not in a hurry. There's a second thing we need to learn here as we think about this important question, what does it mean to have a covenant God? It means you have a God who loves to bless you with His precious promises. God loves to glorify Himself with His precious promises. He he is displaying them in full, vivid color. HD. You know what HD is, right? It's it's just it's on display, if you will. And it's interesting from verses three to eight and then fifteen to twenty two, Yahweh is just rehearsing his promises here. It's not like they're new. He's he had promises in chapter 12. He had promises in chapter 15. But I, this is nothing really new. But I do want to focus in on verses 7 and 8. And, and, and the reason for that is because these are the major promises here at the heart of this covenant. So what are they? Well, first of all, we have an enduring inheritance mentioned here. Verse 8. There's an enduring inheritance. Look at verse 8. Because it says... God, Yahweh says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Wow. In case you missed something here, let, let me just highlight something for you. That in this promise, what's going on? Is this promise only about some real estate or is there something bigger and better going on here? I believe there's more going on than just some simple real estate. So please allow me to explain. Notice that Abraham is included in the land promise of Canaan, the, the promised land here. However, we learn back in chapter 15, God's already told him he's not going to see it. He's going to die. He's going to die. Have not and not have the land yet. So if Abraham is to enjoy the land, how will that be? Well, then it has to be after his death sometime, then, doesn't it? 
And, and so w- within this, there is an implicit argument here for the resurrection of the dead. Abraham fully believed in the resurrection of the dead. And, and that shouldn't surprise you, by the way, because if you read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, it says that Abraham desired a better country. He desired a better country. For Abraham, the focus and the promise is on the land of Canaan, but from Scripture we know that Canaan is just a part of the new earth. Somehow God had given faith to Abraham. He's, he's, he's looking for this better country. And there Abraham, of course, is going to enjoy his inheritance. And by the way, so will all believers in Jesus Christ. All believers in Jesus Christ will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So my question for you, my friend, is are you looking forward to your inheritance? Now, how do we know that we're going to receive that inheritance? Same way Abraham knew it, by faith. (laughs) And the testimony of Scripture, by the way, shows us that death cannot ruin your inheritance. Just because you die doesn't mean you get to re- you're, you're not going to receive your inheritance. And by faith we can believe, we can have this assurance, the inheritance is coming. That's good news. But there's a second promise. In verse 7, we see an awesome gift. There is an awesome gift in these simple words, the end of verse 7, because it says, Well, let's just read all verse 7. It says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I like what one commentator said by the name of Donald McLeod. He said, what did God say to Abraham? I will be your God. What does that mean? It means that God is saying to Abraham, I will be for you. I will exist for you. I will exercise my godness for you. I will be committed to you. There's no way that can be improved upon. End quote. That's an amazing promise. It's an awesome gift. How do I explain this? It's... um, the God is for you. He's with you. He's, he's all of that. How, the, the, only, the only thing that comes to my mind, the closest analogy to God's promise is found in the traditional marriage ceremony. Those of you who are married, hopefully you had some vows, and you understand that, hopefully we all understand this, that when a man promises to be a loving and faithful husband, what is he vowing to do? Well, the rest of the vows are hopefully fleshing that out. They're, they're explaining what that looks like. What does it mean to be a faithful and loving husband? Often you might hear the groom say something like, well, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. So what is the husband promising his wife? Well, As a husband who made similar vows like that, that's a scary prospect. (laughs) It is a serious thing to make those kind of vows. 
If I knew what I was getting myself into, I think I would have run out of the church building. If I knew what what's the next 25 years of my life going to look like. Whoa, am I, oh, is that what it looks like? Woo! Because uh, we, we tend to like the plenty part and the joy part and the and the health part. But in that picture, there's been a lot of sickness, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of want. And it shows how committed the covenant relationship really is. <laughs> so what is the husband promising his wife? He, well, he's, he's saying, I said this, that, hey, I will be with you. I am totally for you in all circumstances. I will be all that a husband ought to be no matter what the circumstances are like. Wow. Does a husband fully understand what he's saying? What he's vowing at that point? Probably not. Probably not. I certainly didn't. But that's amazing. That's what it should mean. It's an awesome covenant between a man and a woman. And therefore, it's an awesome gift if you understand that in light of what God says, He's covenanting to be your God, to be Abraham's God. And so when Yahweh says, I will be God to you, Abraham, He's promising to be all that God should be, all that God could be, and all that He would be. So all that God should be and would be, He he will be to His people. Wow. (laughs) That's really good news. Why is that? Because this is a relationship that no time is able to exhaust. <laughs> Unlike me, when I made those vows to my wife, you know, it's uh, I'm expecting death to come eventually, but that's not the case with God. God can't die. And so there's no circumstance that can change the, the promises and the covenant here. There, no disaster can destroy this. No catastrophe can crush No human abandonment can alter this because God will never divorce, never leave, never forsake. And so when Yahweh says, I will be God to you, you know what that means? It means you have everything, or at least everything that you need, and you have more. You have more than what you need. Now you might be looking at this and say, "Uh, so what? What should I do with God's promises? I mean, that, that's nice. God's promises, that's yeah, great. But what do I do with that? Maybe you need to develop a Simeon Lee syndrome. Any of you ever heard of Simeon Lee? You would have if you read Agatha Christie's book called Perot's Christmas. Any of you read Perot's Christmas? Anyway, Agatha Christie was a, uh, a mystery writer. And there's a guy in that book called Simeon Lee. And he would often go to his safe where he had stashed all these uncut diamonds. And Mr. Lee would love opening up his safe and he would pick up handfuls of these diamonds and just let them run through his fingers. And you say, well, why did he do that? He did it for the sheer pleasure of feeling the uncut diamonds in his hands. And that's why some have said, well, we need, uh, we need a Simeon Lee syndrome. 
and kind of treat God's promises like these uncut diamonds that just kind of, just for the sheer pleasure of feeling God's promises, let them run through your mind. And in the process, they will bring you great encouragement and strength and assurance. They bring great strength. And you know what? The other thing that happens is God's glorified in the process. Because He he delights to show off His promises and bless us with His promises. And you know what happens? It ends up being a a win-win. It's a win for us and a win for God. But there's a third major point we need to talk about here. To have a covenant God means you have a God who expects total devotion to Him in love and obedience. See, if you look at verse 1, we see God expects a response to His promises. God expects us to respond to His covenant. God told Abraham in verse 1 basically this, be wholehearted. Because God says, I am God Almighty. Here's the response. Walk before me and be blameless. And then you read the end of the chapter. Abraham shows he is wholehearted to God. He is totally devoted to God by his immediate obedience. So let me ask you, my friends. We'll talk more about Abraham in a moment here. But what do you do when God stops speaking to you? What do you do when the sermon's over? What do you do after you've read your Bible? (laughs) Do you live what you've learned? That's what we should do, because James 1, verse 22, says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. That's the proper response. Well, Abraham, praise God, was a doer of the word in this situation at least. Obedience was his response to God. Now we're going to... Note, there's actually three truths about Abraham's obedience. Three truths about Abraham's obedience. Take note of these. That Number one, Abraham's obedience was prompt. It was prompt. If you look at verse 23, chapter 17, verse 23, God stopped speaking. He finished talking in verse 22. God went up from Abraham. Look what verse 23 says next. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. By the way, the Bible says this twice, in verse 26 as well, because I put it on the screen here for you. Look at the next screen. You see verses 23 and 26, God says it twice, that Abraham went that very day to obey God. So we're informed of his promptness here in the circumcision. And this is is important because God blesses Abraham after his obedience. After this, we see that God takes the barren womb of Sarah and makes it fruitful. So then Sarah is able to give birth to Isaac. So punctual obedience brings the blessings on time, as it always does. And so some of us like to complain about God's blessings. Some of us like to complain because sometimes we feel like, well, they're overdue. You know, 
God, hurry up here. <laughs> Remember, God's never in a hurry. Sadly, some Christians wander about aimlessly out in a spiritual wilderness because they're not practicing promptness when it comes to obeying God's orders. God's given you orders. He's given you tasks. He expects you to obey. So obey God promptly. It's a very important lesson to learn. But we also see, number two, that Abraham's obedience was not only prompt, but it's complete. It's complete. Because it says a couple times here that every male in Abraham's household was circumcised. You say, eh, no big deal. Minor surgery, not, you know, it can be done quickly. Well, you need to remember, what did chapter 14 say? Chapter 14 tells us that there were 318 fighting men who attacked those kings. The attacking force was 318 men. So that means there could be easily over 400, sorry, 400 people whom Abraham had to circumcise, including himself. If you think about that, yeah, I know it's minor surgery. But if he was able to do one a minute, which he's probably not, you're looking at over seven hours likely. Seven hours of work, if I got my math right. Yeah, it was a minor operation, but we're talking about a a major operation to cover the entire camp and obey God. But what does he do? Abraham was obedient to God, and it was complete, including himself. So my friends, we need to understand completeness is as important as promptness. God expects us to be prompt in our obedience, but he also expects us to be complete. In fact, you could say, if completeness does not accompany promptness, then guess what? Promptness actually loses its value. It loses its value. And some of us may be prompt in responding to God's commands, but do we carry them to the very end? Do we complete them? Some, some of us are good at starting stuff, but we're not so good at seeing them all the way to the end. Abraham saw it all the way to the end. So let me ask you, are you finishing the task that God has given to you? Promptness only counts when you complete the job. So don't quit. Obey God completely. Number three, what else do we learn about Abraham's obedience here? We see Abraham's obedience was difficult. <laughs> you can read other portions of Scripture to maybe maybe understand this a little more if you're not familiar with this, but there's a lot of things we can learn from this, but one, one thing I, I'm thinking of is that God's commands are not easy to obey sometimes. Maybe often that's the case. In fact, they're impossible if you try to do them in your own strength. The good news is, with Christ, I can do everything He wants me to do. But without Christ, of course, I can do nothing. And so God's commands are not easy. And there's there's two things... We, we see about circumcision that makes it difficult. Of course, the, the obvious one is it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. In Abraham's camp, there's, there's many adults and boys that were being circumcised here. For them, it would have taken many days for all that soreness to wear off. And there's another lesson in that because obedience is not going to 
please the sin nature. It's not going to please your flesh. Obedience to God might be very, very difficult. Obedience is not exempt from the pain of life, which might include some troubles. It might include some trials. To obey will involve pain of some sort. Abraham's proof of that fact. And so obey God even when it's difficult. Obey God even when it's difficult. The second reason uh, circumcision is difficult is because it's humbling. It's a very humbling procedure. For several days, these males would have been laying around in Abraham's camp uh, out of action, not being able to do their work like they wanted to. They they would have needed time to recuperate. They would would have uh, been embarrassed probably, might feel a little awkward. I feel awkward even talking about this. You probably feel awkward listening to this. We don't talk about this stuff. Well, imagine what they were going through. It's humbling. And all this reminds us that to obey God, we often require to do tasks that, that aren't exalt. It's just not exalting us. It's not lifting us up, at least in man's eyes. To serve God well, what do we need, though? We need humility. We need humility. And so, my friends, remember what the Bible says in James, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, you might be looking at this and saying, man, that was a long time ago. This guy, he, he's no longer around. And, you know, this, what does this have to do with me? Glad you asked. What does circumcision mean for us? Well, I can tell you, first of all, it, it, not what it meant for the Jews. And this discussion carries on through your Bible. There's a lot of passages in your Bible that, that address circumcision. <coughs> Excuse me. Unfortunately, the Jews made this ritual a means of salvation. Circumcision was, uh, well, for them anyway, a guarantee that they were accepted by God. It was the sign of this covenant relationship and it became a really big deal. But they didn't realize that circumcision actually stood for something that was far greater and deeper than just this this ritual. See, it, it had to do with the person's relationship to God. God, by the way, says He wants His people to have their hearts circumcised and to be totally devoted to Him in love and obedience. For example, here's just one of many verses. It's on the screen here for you. That Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, as Moses is speaking to Israel, it says this, that Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What was the point of all this physical removal of flesh? It was actually supposed to be pointing to something that was more important and greater. God wanted His people to have their hearts circumcised so they would love Him with all their heart. Now see how the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the physical operation had nothing actually to do whatsoever with Abraham's salvation. It didn't save him. Circumcision didn't save him, didn't convert him. So look what uh, Romans 4, verse 9 here says. Here's what it says on the screen again. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as 
righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I hope you get the point there. (laughs) If you get nothing else out of Romans 4, just... Uh, How was Abraham saved? How how did he get this right standing with God? He was justified by faith alone. It wasn't by any works, including his circumcision. Because remember, back in chapter 15, verse 6, it says that God counted it to him for righteousness. His, His belief and his faith in God is what was the important part there, not anything he did. So do you understand? Abraham had believed God, received God's righteousness before he ever was circumcised. So circumcision was not the means of his salvation. God says it was just a sign. It's a sign of his covenant relationship with God. But sadly, what often happens is we as human beings, we take these good things, we we twist them and corrupt them into things they're not meant to be. And so... There was a legalistic element in the early church that tried to make circumcision and obedience to the law a requirement for salvation. In other words, you you couldn't be right with God unless you had been circumcised and you keep all the law. Well, fortunately, the church council in Acts chapter 15 refuted that heresy. And Paul spends a majority of the book of Galatians also showing, well, that's not true. Justification is by faith alone. But what does all this mean to Christian believers today? The seal of our salvation, my friends, is not an external right, but it's the presence of an internal witness. What is the seal? What is the sign, if you will? How do you know that you're saved today? How do you know that? Not through circumcision. Here's how we know. Look at this. Ephesians 1, verse 13 says that in Him, that's Christ, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So my friend, if you're a Christian today, the seal of your salvation, the proof, if you will, how do you know? How do you know if you're you're really in Christ? Well, You have the promised Holy Spirit as your seal. That's what it says. So my friends, believers have experienced now a spiritual circumcision that that makes them a part of what the Bible calls the true circumcision. I love what Colossians 2 verse 11 says here. Look at this, Colossians 2 11. In Him, again, talking about Christ, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And that's good news. That's good news, because now there's a, there's a circumcision in Christ. And so if you've trusted Christ to save you, the, the Holy Spirit performed this spiritual surgery that now enables you to have victory over your sin nature. You, you now are able to have victory over those desires of the, the old self. And so circumcision removes, of course, only a part of your body. But we see here that the true spiritual circumcision puts off the sins of the flesh and then deals radically with your sin nature. And so the spiritual circumcision here, notice, is accomplished when you're saved. It's accomplished at conversion when a sinner believes Christ and then you are baptized, or I prefer the word immersed, by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And that's, uh, well, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. You'll understand this, hopefully, this imagery here. Because it says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized or immersed into this one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So my friends, do you see what happens? Do you see this? This is not water baptism. This is the spirit baptism immersing. and it, 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 The spirit baptism then identifies the believer with Christ. And how do you do that? It's, it's identified with Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension and, and also even his circumcision. But not the physical act. And so therefore, here's the good news. It's not the circumcision of Abraham or the what the Bible sometimes calls the circumcision of, of Moses, but the circumcision of Christ that is important to the Christian believer. So you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. In fact, some of you can't do this. And that's not the point. But what about your heart? The inside of you, internally, <laughs> has that has that flesh been removed internally, if you will? And that's possible. That's good news. You can have victory over that flesh. And so the, may God enable you and me to be totally devoted to Yahweh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the narrative section here in our Bible. We see how you are revealing yourself as a covenant God. You are the self-existent one who's always been, who is, and always will be the great I Am. And we're thankful that uh, you're not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. You, you are the Yahweh. And you still exist, and you, you've given us covenants. We're thankful, not just to Israel, but we're thankful that you, you want a relationship with us as well. Thank you. We don't deserve that, but may we appreciate it. May we know what you're doing in our lives and desire to love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our entire being. And May we be totally, fully devoted to you. So, may we grow in our knowledge of our Lord 
and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.